Welcome to Call and Shots, a uh, special Saturday uh, pod, uh, re- recording earlier, uh, recording earlier rather than doing, going live, uh, with, with co-author of two very interesting books, uh, The Playmaker's Advantage and The Playmaker's Decision, uh, Decisions, uh, Dan Peterson. Um, welcome to the pod. Thanks for joining me. Hey, Seth. Great to be with you, and thanks for inviting me. Uh, I really love your podcast. Thanks. Thanks a lot. I, I so I I wanted to have you on. I heard you. Uh, I, I first kind of learned of your work when you were on uh, uh, Ben Taylor's pod a couple of weeks back. A uh, friend of the show, Ben Taylor, um, and I, I texted Ben is like yeah, th- th- this was a uh, this this was an extremely me pod because I think um, a lot of the research that that you and your co author get into is stuff that I'm very interested in in, in learning more about. So. Uh, without sort of rehashing that pod, but for uh, for people to give a get a get a sense of of kind of what your work is um, before we, before we you know dive in, like can you can you briefly summarize kind of of, of how those books came about and what sort of the the the, uh, the theses are? Sure, absolutely, um, and I'll try to keep it short because I ramble. Um, so. Uh, unlike you, I am not a statistician. Uh, unlike all the people we quote in the books, and like my co-author, I'm, I do not have a PhD in this stuff. So I am a, a sports dad in Wisconsin, and I've had, my wife and I raised three sons who played all different sports growing up. And so we were very avid sports parents on the sidelines. And I was just fascinated watching my three boys grow up and play sports and and then just being a big sports fan in general of all leagues. But uh, watching them and watching their teammates and trying to figure out why some of the kids on the team, and I did some coaching when they were really young, why some kids on those teams just excelled. You know, it's kind of the bell curve. You know, 10% were just amazing. They seemed to get it. Uh, 10%, you know, not so much. Um, and then the group in the middle were just, just kids, you know, they, they liked to be out there. They weren't amazing. They weren't bad, etc. Um, but I was always fascinated by the kids who just got it, you know, and they don't maybe only been playing the sport for a few years at that, at a very young age and young level. And, and then you watch some players as they go through their teen years and then play high school sports uh, two of my boys went on to play college sports, and you, you just at every level you see that you see some of those players who just can see the floor better, see the field better, the ice, whatever it is, and they make plays and they see passes that others don't, and they just seem to uh, the game doesn't move as fast for them, and. Obviously, the the word that comes to mind across all those sports is playmaker. And that's one of the words uh, I always keyed in on is what makes these playmakers who they are. You know, we can talk all day about physical skills and sports skills, but it's really my belief was always that it was in your brain. It was something cognitive going on there, whether it's inherited, whether it's learned. And so anyway, I was fascinated with that topic and as my side passion, I would read all these uh, research papers on cognition and uh, a lot of stuff in the sports science world. I started a blog 10 years ago about these topics just out of interest. That grew into a bunch of other things over the years, working with some sports science companies and writing articles for them, etc. And then eventually, around 2017, I said, you know, I'd like to write a book. And I know you've been through this uh, with your great book out. And I thought, all right, I think I can put this, my thoughts and everything I've read over the last several years, and blog articles and stuff, and I can formulate a book out of this. And uh, <laughs> it was interesting. Um, I went to a, a literary agent who actually returned my calls and she was very helpful. And she said, Dan, I love the concept. Uh, I, I think there's an audience for this. Uh, parents and coaches, but I'll be brutally honest with you. Um, you have no credibility in this field. <laughs> so, so what my literary agent said was, if you could go out and find a co-author who has credibility, whether it be academic or professional, etc., 
And I said, sure. And so I had been working in a few of these sports science companies with Dr. Leonard Zykowski, who for 39 years was a professor of performance psychology at Boston University. And he wor he's worked with teams all over the world um, and just a very well-known figure in performance psychology. And I, Len had recently retired to Florida and I called him up and I said, hey, Len, how, would you like to write a book? And he had written hundreds of papers and, and several textbooks. But he said, you know, I've never written a, a book, a trade book, a book for, you know, parents and coaches, et cetera, and I'd love to. So we joined forces and submitted the proposal and, and uh, Simon and & Schuster picked it up. So off and running. And that first book, The Playmaker's Advantage, came out in 2018. Um, so that's kind of how that got started. And then that book came out, uh, got a good reception from coaches and parents, but especially the coaches that we talked to came back and said, yeah, we liked that book. It was very interesting. But the one part in the middle that we talk like one chapter about was decision making. And they said, for us and our players, that's kind of this black box. We're not really sure exactly how they make decisions uh, on the court, on the field. And could you dive deeper into that uh, in, in another book. And so we did in 2020, we brought out the Playmakers Decisions, which focuses almost entirely on the decision-making process when they're in the middle of a game and how they choose to do the things they do based on a lot of uh, research in sports and outside of sports. So that's how the two books came about. I think that that just the 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 title of the second especially is what is what interests me. I've um sort of uh, we kind of in in the the sort of basketball talent identification area like thinking of like draft prep or free agency or stuff like that. There's there's often like you know focus on tools and and end results like sort of on either end, but it's almost the um, the more I've studied this, the more I've come to think that the part in the middle, the decision, like the, the you know, tens or, or tens or hundreds of micro decisions that someone makes every second of every, every game they're on the floor or on the field or on the ice, depending on the sport. Like that's, 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 the play, that's what playing the sport is. And yes, there's some physical ability and some skill, uh, some, some athletic ability and some skill that, that allows those decisions to be expressed in certain ways. But that, like, you know, every step or fake or 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 movement of the eyes or whatever is on some level a, a a choice of action, and those things all add up to being good at the sport. And so, uh, you know, it, this is this is always something that comes up in in, bas in in basketball scouting. Oh, he's got great length, great athleticism, blah blah blah. He's got a great shooting touch. He's like, yes, but can he play basketball? Is sort of the, is often the rejoinder for <laughs> for a, a guy who has these these traits but never seems to do anything on the floor. Exactly. And that is the entire premise of both of these books. And it's exactly that. It's, you know, we wanted to start kind of a conversation and a vocabulary for coaches to talk about and players about how do we talk about the cognitive part of the game? Um, you know, so many times you're watching a game and the commentators will say, oh, mental mistake. Oh, good decision there, et cetera. Oh, he just, you know, the errors are killing them. And it's like, okay, it's a recognized issue with any sport. You know, the, 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 more, the fewer mental mistakes you make in a game, the, the more clutch decisions you make, the more you're going to win. And it's almost like the, the physical aspect of the game is almost a given. You know, okay, some players are taller, some players are faster, jump higher, et cetera. And even this, this specific sport skill, you know, hitting a jump shot, dribbling, um, ball handling, all of those things, those are specific sport skills. But everything starts with a decision. That's what we keep saying in the book. Every action taken on the basketball court starts with a decision. And like you said, even the most minute one, like, you know, head fake, you know, look here, look there. Um, should I dribble? Should I pass? Should I take a step this way, et cetera? All of those things at some point was a micro decision in that player's brain to do something. And when taken as a whole, how does that affect the game? How does that affect every action beyond that?
And we have in the first book, and I think a little in the second book, we talk about all of these, as you said, the traditional measures that, that coaches and media and public like to kind of obsess on. You know, in, in football, it's the um, uh, the, the spark, uh, speed, power, agility, quickness, et cetera, reaction time. And in basketball, you know, we still have combines. We still have these, uh, you know, skills that they do at the, at the combine. And it, that's easy to focus on because it's physical. You can see the test result, you know, the 40-yard dash time, the, the vertical leap, all those things. But study after study has shown that there's no correlation, even the infamous Wonderlick in the NFL, there's no correlation between performance on those uh, tests and long-term career potential. Because a lot of that is just kind of canceled out. They're all great athletes. When they, if they get to the NBA level, they're great athletes. Uh, so that kind of cancels each other out to a point. And then it's just a matter of, um, you know, what can they do cognitively? And in, the, in the first book, <laughs> we had a whole section on, and I know with your history with the, with the Bucks. And I've been a fan of the Bucks for most of my life. Um, his, we went into the dreaded history of the Milwaukee Bucks draft number one draft picks, and you know you start with Kareem, and that was you know the all time great pick. And then, and I don't know what your preferred career stat is, but I, we looked at uh, win shares, and if you've compared, you know, Kareem's you know all time leader in career win shares. Uh, for a career. Um, and then you look at, you know, 1977, Kent Benson and his career, or Kareem's career win share was uh, 273.4. Uh, Kent Benson, bless him, his career win share was 33. <laughs> and, but Marcus Johnson, the number three pick for the Bucks that year, uh, his win share was a lot higher at 162. And of the nine picks after Kent Benson that year, all but one had a greater than or equal to win share than, than he did. You know, fast forward to 1994 and Glenn Robinson, you know, seemed like a great pick coming out of Purdue, but career win share in nine years, I think, of 39.8, a lot lower than a lot of the others. And then you look further down in that 94 draft, there's Jason Kidd, 138.6. There's Grant Hill, you know, number three, 99.9. And then, of course, 2005, same thing. Andrew Bogut, number one pick. Career win share is 49.9. And then, of course, in that year as well, Jason Kidd, one of the all-time greats, 154. So it was interesting. And then there's a, a couple researchers at Florida State. Um, we'll talk about the home of Anders Ericsson in a little bit. But uh, Drs. Moxley in town, and they dove really deep into this. And they try to separate out some concepts of skill and talent and potential. And as they defined it, skill is now. This is what you have now. Talent is your future, you know, your f future greatness. And potential, you know, untapped potential is the difference between the two. And they did a huge analysis of years of data of draft picks, uh, where they came out of college, et cetera, the college they went to, the program, and then their NBA success. And I have the quote here that, that they said in their 2014 study, the only variables that predicted NBA success were age, a player's college win shares, and the quality of the college program. And that was it. So you can throw out all the physical stuff they do at, uh, at the, uh, do they call it the combine in the NBA? Yeah. Or they call it something else. No, it's it's the combine. And that's, <laughs> it, and um, I, I was and, and that I think that squares sort of with with my question is is and I think what you were saying earlier is like that's sort of those things are sort of baked in to performance. And it's you you know you talk about something like a like a forty yard dash at the NFL combine or something like that. Um, that measures how fast everyone gets to a certain point starting at the same time but a lot of the stuff is okay but what about the player who knows to start earlier right <laughs> yeah and yeah exactly and, and, it, and it's you know it, we we describe it as um physical attributes and talent are necessary but not sufficient and we argued that 
okay, it has to be something else that attributes to that greatness. And the greatness, in our opinion, is what, what happens in their brain above the neck. So this, this, there's, there's a, you know, the, the kind of argument about the right term to use in basketball. Uh, like the, the, uh, thankfully, I think the term basketball IQ is kind of, is kind of fading out of, out of, out of usage just because, uh, uh, the, 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 the usage of that has been, um, sort of racially problematic over the years in terms of describing some players, generally Caucasian as having high IQ and other players generally not Caucasian as being very instinctive. Um, but so the, the term that I like to use is sort of feel. And so I think this is really what, what we're talking about here is just like, you know, feel is maybe a little bit of a touchy, touchy feely way of, of, of saying it, but kind of that this, this thing to take in information about what's going on around them, uh, identify the right thing to do, pick the right tool in the athletic toolbox to accomplish that and move on. So the, I think that we're getting to the point like that sort of first wave analytics in all sports is sort of identifying kind of a little bit, even if it's a latent variable, like, okay, this, this player performed well, uh, that's a pretty good indication that they know what they're doing. Um, but then like who has it and hasn't quite figured out how to harness it yet? Who doesn't quite have it yet, but maybe we could we could teach them. Who has the who has the the feel, but maybe not the developed skills yet to match that we can we can turn into a better player. That's an entire area where I'm. You know, baseball has probably gotten gotten down this road a little bit more, um, possibly because baseball is a little bit easier in that the to the extent that there are decisions that are far more discretized. But. I, I don't know what my que- my question is here, other than this is a big jumble of things that I'm very interested in knowing more about and wondering, like what your thoughts are in sort of that area of kind of identification of current potential le- and the learning of this whatever this this sort of black box skill set of decision making. Yeah, in terms of it's interesting what we found from the research that was done, and there's quite a, a library of it out there. But yeah, there's been a lot of focus over the years on talent identification across all sports. And some researchers have done a lot of work on, you know, how early should a young athlete get into a specific program? How early should they be identified um, to, you know, for future success and kind of pulled out of the corral and said, "You're, you're destined for greatness because we recognize these things in you? And any of the, the long-term athlete development plans that Olympic committees have or sports teams have or the academies that they have to bring in lots and lots of players and try to find the, the diamond in the rough, um, it, what's been interesting is while that's such a focus in youth sports to find those players at age 10 or 11 and then, you know, somehow they know that they're going to be great <laughs> – it's been interesting. One of the, the um, couple uh, researchers that we looked at for the first book and a little bit in the second book, um, it kind of starts with our friend, Dr. Anders Erickson, uh, unfortunately recently passed away, but we had a chance to interview him for the first book uh, several years ago. And he's of course is famous for uh, his theory of deliberate practice. And he actually focused not in sports, but in music and other expertise areas. And, you know, for anyone who's re- read Malcolm Gladwell's Outliers book, um, Gladwell made Dr. Erickson's research famous, but <laughs> infamous is probably more a better word because uh, one of the things that Malcolm keyed in on is the ten- infamous 10,000 hours of deliberate practice. And Dr. Erickson didn't really focus on the quantity of hours. He focused on the concept that he developed a deliberate practice of how instead of just shooting baskets in your, in your driveway randomly, you know, uh, work on your weakest shot, uh, work on specific technique, work on things that um, if, if available, have a trained coach next to you, uh, helping you correct some things. So in other words, really focus in, on specific skills rather than just random hours of practice and calling it another hour of practice. Um, But 
and even Gladwell covered all of that in his book, but um, the general public, the sporting public kind of focused in on that 10,000 hours. So, you know, as we said, we had a lot of parents, you know, probably me included, like, okay, so we just have to start the clock at 10,000 hours and eventually my kid will be in the NBA. Um, but it's obviously a lot more in depth than that. And one of the things I thought was interesting coming out of that research of Erickson's research and the whole 10,000 hours thing, the doctors Hambrick and McNamara at Michigan State, they've done several studies, quite a bit of research on trying to kind of pull out what is the difference between or how much does this deliberate practice contribute to future greatness? And it was almost kind of like they wanted to eliminate how much practice uh, attributes to that success. So what they found in many different studies, looking at over 9,000 different studies on deliberate practice, and so many that are out there, deliberate practice was only able to account for 18% of eventual success in sports. And the other 82%, unfortunately, was, as they termed, unknown. <laughs> is, it, uh, is it genetic? Is it physical skills? Is it other things? But they said deliberate practice only accounted for about 18%. And they found similar results across music, chess, education, etc. And then going one step further, there was a, a German researcher, Dr. Arne Gulick, who did all kinds of studies on these junior talent development programs, talent ID programs. He, he focused on soccer in Germany. He interviewed, I think it was about 60 Bundesliga level, the top pro level in Germany, uh, soccer players about their career, similar to what Ericsson had done, and then compared their their upbringing, their youth soccer experience, etc., to where they are. And so his quote was, "Junior success, success at a young age, is a poor indicator of long term senior success. Success at age ten had zero correlation with success as a senior, someone in, in the professional ranks." And the same was true at age group 11 to 15 and 15 to 18. And by interviewing all of these players, his number that he came up with is these Bundesliga top players average around 4,500 hours in their youth, specifically with soccer. He also noticed that a lot of them, it was breadth of sports experience, not depth. So instead of going into a soccer academy at age 10, and spending the next six, seven, eight years of your life in this academy, the Bundesliga top players were spending all of their youth time playing all kinds of different sports and not necessarily, you know, specialist youth club type teams. They played good competition, but they got the most benefit from playing multiple sports. So they basically threw cold water on all these long-term athlete development programs that had these very specific goals and very specific enrollment numbers and said, you know what? We don't really know. No one can say that by doing all of these programs and spending these millions of dollars that we're going to develop the next superstars of tomorrow. And so they kind of threw cold water on that. So anyway, I'll stop there and see if they have questions. Uh, no. So that, I mean, uh, people who have, uh, who have, have read or listened to me for a long time, uh, kind of probably know where I'm going next is one of, one of my, one of my favorite books is uh, range by, by David Epstein. So I'm, I'm very, yeah. I'm very sort of fam familiar with, with, with this area and, and just sort of um, like there's, there's a couple different theories that might have coming out of this. And the first is sort of the, uh, if, if you've read, read that book, he, he kind of leads with the example of Ty Tiger versus Roger Federer, whereas like Tiger is the classic Tiger Woods is the classic, golf, do it, 10,000 hours, become greatest player of all time. Uh, whereas Roger Federer, like, was in his mid to late teens that he decided, like, no, tennis is the thing. And then he became, you know, arguably the greatest tennis player of all time. So, uh, and as as the, the, the German researcher just suggesting seems to indicate, the, the Federer area is uh, more common and I, sort of the, what what seems to come out of that for me is it was it wasn't uh, it wasn't Earl Woods who's you know sort sort of became synonymous with like grindy sports dad who 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 took him to golf it was Tiger who was like at at young age like like just 
gravitated towards golf. So it's like the 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 concept of of match quality. Now that's that that's sort of aside from what we're talking about. But what I'm but sort of the the idea that being put in all these different situations and all these different sports exposes someone to different patterns and problem solving so that when when things happen quickly at the highest level they have experience with problem solving in a wide variety of elements whereas if you're you know to not to not to bag on the the american kind of youth soccer model but i will is you know the diff- <laughs> the, the thing that can train you to you know, make better soccer decisions over over your lifetime isn't really the same thing that's going to help you win the the uh, the eleven year old you know the, the under elevens or whatever championship. Exactly, and and uh, you know to get into a little more of the science that we have in both books the um, the great book the great research by Daniel Kahneman uh, and Amos Tversky who were psychologists and they spent most of their career in kind of consumer decision-making, et cetera. But they also contributed a lot in you've ever read thinking fast and slow by Daniel Kahneman came out several years ago, but his whole research and it's widely accepted now won a Nobel prize for it um, is this concept of fast and slow thinking system one and system two thinking. And it applies greatly to sports of all types it's basically saying, you know, system one thinking is you get a ball thrown at your head, you're going to duck. You know, it's reaction things. It's two plus two. Oh, that's four. I didn't have to think about it. I just knew it. It just came out. And so all of these uh, sports skills that go on on the court, like dribbling a basketball for an NBA player, he is not consciously thinking about dribbling a basketball. You know, it's just happening on autopilot in the back of his brain because he doesn't need to anymore. He's mastered that skill and he could use his, his brain cycles for other things like decision-making and seeing what's going on around him. He's not thinking about, you know, the ball going up and down to his hand and balancing it and all of those things. Same with hockey players, same with football players, etc. System two, on the other hand, is much more deliberate where you actually have to stop and think, you know, um, I always use the example, you know, 22 times 78, you know, well, all right, I can figure that out if you give me a minute. I'll do it in my head, but I have to stop and think. It's not automatic. And it's the same with new basketball players just learning to dribble. All of their attention is spent on dribbling the basketball. So all of the, the kind of the sports journey um, for a young athlete is getting things from system two into system one. So the more things that I used to have to think about that I can now, the word is automaticity, I can automatize that and say, my brain knows how to do that. It's kind of like driving your car. You don't really think about it while you're doing it. But, or we always use the example of, you know, shooting free throws. You know, you don't really think about your form, but if you start thinking about your form, you're going to probably screw it up or your golf swing. But the more that an athlete can move from system two to system one and put more skills and more decision-making into that system one category. And like you said, that's pattern recognition. That's seeing different situations, hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands, different situations, micro situations, and your brain logging that and saying, okay, in this situation, I was playing ball. This was, a, this was the player movement, et cetera. I saw this, it happened, it didn't go well. Okay, my brain subconsciously logged that as an error. So I'm going to try not to do that next time. But the more, that, the more exposure a young athlete has to all of those different scenarios of making decisions on their own, uh, the faster they'll progress. And that's one of the things that we talk about as far as how to train young playmakers is always give them the opportunities to make those decisions and to discover their own mistakes uh, and not, you know, interrupt that pattern of decision-making. Sure. You can point out a few things after the play or whatever, but in practice, wherever it is, give them those opportunities. And, and that can be across sports as well. So playing complementary sports, you know, if they're attack minded sports, if it's basketball or hockey or soccer um, with the same kind of end goal in mind, um, shooting, passing, 
moving the puck, ball, whatever it is, those are complementary skills and complementary decisions, the concepts of offense and defense, et cetera. Um, those will, it'll keep the young athlete interested in playing multiple sports um, and it will also help them. And that's, I think, what lost on a lot of parents is my coach says, I got to play basketball 12 months a year. It's like, well, you're actually hurting them. <laughs> In some you should cases, be playing other sports. Yeah. Yeah. Gonna, yeah. That physically as well. Yeah. yeah. I it, like, you know, we uh, can say from, you know, the it was bemoaned oftentimes by our, 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 our head of, uh, head of performance that, you know, the, 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 the frequency, which, which he was seeing, you know, 20 year olds come to draft workout with arthritic or pre-arthritic knees because yeah. of, because of, you know, the, 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 just the constant, you know, several games a day pounding of AAU and doing that for 12 months a year, as opposed to, you know, doing other movements, other possibly complementary movements that didn't, you know, overload certain joints to the, to the, uh, to the uh, exclusion of all others. Exactly. And one of the, for the first book, we, we talked to, thanks to Len and his connections, <laughs> we got to talk to Brad Stevens when he was still head coach. And, uh, and he, we talked to him about, you know, youth development, et cetera. And he was very forthright. I mean, even at that highest level of trying to identify players. And I have a quote here from him. He said, I'm a huge believer in playing multiple sports. I'm not a fan of specializing early, in large part because I think that you figure out what your passion truly is as you get older. And then when you want to start to specialize, once you figure that out, it becomes something they're even more excited about. But then, he, like you said, he says, today's youth sports culture is often focused on improbable future opportunities and a persistent fear of missing out. The reality is that everybody is specializing at a young age because people think they need in order to keep up with the Joneses or play college down the road. Uh, that stuff all separates itself out later. But, yeah, there's a pressure to specialize earlier, uh, and every sport wants more time. But, um, yeah, so I, he would he would agree just from his standpoint. Um, now, does he, do his scouts go look at ACC or, um, uh, what do you call it? Um, the youth sports leagues. Yeah. AAU. AAU thank yeah. you. Yeah. AAU. Do, do they go to AAU games? Of course they do. And they try to identify talent there. But I think if, you know, if interviewed, he'd, he would recommend playing multiple sports. Well, I, and that, that comes up in the sort of the background process on, on, you know, it's, it's, uh, there's been articles recently about uh, you know uh, football teams looking and saying, okay, well we want a guy draft guys who played basketball at a high level because um, they because you know they uh, some some of these things and it certainly comes up in in you know the, the the basketball draft process as well. It's like okay, well he played he didn't just play basketball he did this and that and this and that and that that's you know you know, partially a proxy for athletic talent because the, the, these players who tend to be like four sport stars, like, okay, it's not just the mental aspect of it. There's a certain, there's there certain gifts that allow people to show up to, to a track meet having not done practice and, you know, run, run really fast or something like that. Um, my, but so this all makes sense. The part where I'm wondering is sort of, I, I guess the, 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 where the rubber meets the road is that, really that transfer from type two to type one and identifying who does that well, identifying how they do it. And I would think that identifying how they do it in terms of, you know, there's, you know, whatever research we want to talk about, about learning styles, um, what that means about who can then improve that or who, if you feed them the information the right way, will make that transfer. Um, and so that like, again, I'm I'm thinking of this just coming at this because of my background, almost coming at as at an angle of from a a programmatic sense. Like I'm a college coach. I, I okay. I'm not I'm not a coach who is going to get one and done players. I want guys who are who who might not be great now. But by the time they're juniors, they'll really be something. Or I'm an NBA team, and I'm I'm looking at who to who to put in my player development pipeline, whether it's 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 draft or or even you know the, the there's the few teams that are very consistently good about using their, their G league to, you know, take previously unheralded players and turn them into NBA players. If I wanted to get on that train a little bit, how do I identify the guys who should be in that pipeline? And then how do I make that pipeline most successful? 
Um, I know that's, that is a huge question with multiple different tendrils, but that's really, <laughs> that's really the meat of, of what I wanted to talk to you about. Yeah. And it, it gets down to it. I think in our opinion, um, as far as measuring a player and, and, you know, you can always look at their past performance and look at film and all of that, but there's been some movement over the last decade of, well, should we dive deeper into a prospect's brain? And uh, in addition to looking at their film and interviewing them and all of that, um, is there a difference between players for example, in their actual cognition that's in their brain. So in other words, their working memory capacity, their information processing speed, a lot of these things can be measured now by taking, you know, we've all seen lumosity in the brain training areas that come out, but there's also tests using similar type of non-sports um, uh, elements to say, well, what is your working memory capacity and compare that to age-related um, uh, people in, in that sport or give every one of our prospects this cognitive set of cognitive tests and just see where they're at and see how they compare with each other. Not that one is a high score, one is a low score, whatever, but just how they compare. So in other words, this player has a scores higher on the cognitive tests than others. There's been some famous studies of some of the great soccer players, uh, not necessarily Messi, but uh, Iniesta, and who was the other guy at Barcelona? Um, uh, Xavi? I'll think of Xavi, yeah. And and just, uh, they had a Swedish psychologist do one of his cognitive tests on them, and they just, they were off the charts. And it had nothing to do with soccer. But it, it showed spatial relations, it showed some of these other tests that were just like, okay, Somewhere along the way, we don't, it's a chicken or egg problem. Uh, their cognitive abilities are much higher than their peers. Now, the question is did their cognitive abilities get better because they were an elite athlete, or were they born with this and that's what made them a great, an elite athlete? Um, that's what they're still t trying to tease out um, as far as if we were to give prospects uh, these cognitive tests. In addition to all the film we're watching, in addition to our coaches, grading systems and all that, would that be a, a helpful addition to kind of saying who might have the cognitive capacity to do better? And it's it, it's, it's a very new area and some teams are using it. Some teams are a little skeptical about it um, because everyone's heard about the Wonderlick and nobody trusts it anymore. So... But what the Wonderlick did was, you know, very specific cultural-based questions. This is more, you know, reaction time on a computer screen, working memory, how many things can you remember, things like that. So, and, and that's, actually, that's actually the uh, work for a company during the day. Um, and we are a neuroscience technology company. And we do that for uh, clinical trials for neurodegenerative disease treatments and pharmaceutical researchers who are looking at that. And we measure and report on cognition, you know, before and after. And so some of those tests are very accurate at finding subtle changes in cognition and being able to measure it over time. And that's, in fact, that's what they use. A lot of sports teams use for or, uh, concussion testing. Sure. They have all their players go through baseline testing. So they know what their pattern is. And then if God forbid they had an injury they can take the test again and see if they've gotten back to their baseline because some, some of those things are hidden, even though the headaches and the dizziness went away, they still may be feeling the effect of a concussion. So anyway, it's a long way of saying there are some ways for, for teams to look at some of those things and decide, you know, um, is this a test that we could use to identify something hidden in a player that we're not seeing? So, so that seems that, that that again that 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 seems like that that's hard enough, obviously. But that that again right. seems seems almost wholly you know wholly present focused, and right. it, see, it seems like you know like the the sort of the analytics like again across sports analytics one is sort of who are the best players, and this is that seems like the very the very sharp end of that sort of spear. Is, is diving down into the level of condition. 
the, the analytics 2.0 is sort of how do we make the best players? And so that's, that's, you know, I, I guess it, it, what I'm getting from you is the jury is a little bit still out on if and how those things can be, uh, you know, trained or improved once you reach a certain level of development or, or even at a younger level of development, how, if there's a, a, at, you know, it's, it, this, it, we're talking about brain research, so it gets it like, there's, it's inherently a little icky on a certain level, but, <laughs> right. but, but uh, like, you know, what, what are the, the, you know, what are methods of coaching that, that, that do this? And then, and then again, identifying how to help a specific player make that transfer from long-term to short-term uh, or from, from, you know, cognitive, from conscious thought to immediate action, uh, you know, uh, perception uh, reaction. Right. Yeah. And, and it's interesting. Um, a couple comments on that. One of the things at the youth level, um, and I, we have all experienced this if you've watched your kids play sports, you know, there are the sports parents and coaches on the sideline who kind of, as we say, you know, remote control the kids. And they're not, you know, yelling and screaming, just some some are just screaming random things, but some are telling them specifically what to do. Pass the ball. No, shoot it. No, go over here. And one of the things that, that we stress in the book is you're actually hurting your child by doing that, even if you're a coach. Um, you know, there's the coaches on the sideline who will tell them every pass to make. And part of that is to avoid mistakes. And they don't want the kids to have to make mistakes um, and they want to win the game. And, but that completely destroys any learning environment that they had at that game as far as making their own decisions and realizing, okay, I was in this decision. I made a split second decision, turned out to be the wrong one or whatever. And, and now I've learned from that. And I didn't get a lot of negative reinforcement, you know, the coach yelling at me for a bad pass or whatever. So, but that's what they need in those early years and all of those patterns that they're seeing and letting their brain sort that out that, okay, you know, I have to see all of these different situations. Now, a coach may gently at a timeout or whatever say, next time do this or proactively say, what, what, what did you, not sarcastically, but what did you see there and, and why did you make that pass or blah, blah, blah. And you can have them analyze their own decision and say, well, I thought this guy was going there and and things like that. The other thing that I think is really interesting, and it, it, it's definitely in your realm, Seth, is we've asked so many people, what is, uh, analytics folks, what is a, let's take basketball, a decision-making metric in basketball or a collection <laughs> of metrics, a collection of, I know it's a $100,000 question, or a, a collection of metrics that would measure decision-making. Because as you know, well, it, it's, you know, okay, we've got assists, we've got, you know, turnover ratio, we've got things like that at a macro level. But as you started at the beginning saying, it's all of those micro ones. So you, you take a pass in basketball, for example, okay, I passed it from here to there. I completed the pass. Great. That's, you know, that'll help my pass completion rate. And if that person takes a shot and makes it, hey, I get an assist too. But then there's all those other scenarios of, I made a good decision to pass to him. I didn't execute it well. The pass, you know, wasn't wasn't properly, and the guy stole it. And so it was a bad execution of a good decision. Or I made a great decision, a great pass, and the guy just missed the shot. Okay, so now I don't get an assist for that great decision. Yes, coaches can watch film and recognize that subjectively and say, yeah, overall, you played a good game, etc. But if, if we're going to improve decision-making – you know, you, you want things to measure. And obviously this, this is your career. So what do you think, how do we take metrics and statistics so that we can measure that decision-making process so that we can say before and after we were a poor decision-making team, we did these things in practice, now we're a better decision-making team as proven by these metrics? So this is this is a really this is a really interesting question because this is something I think this is this gets to why a lot of people in the sports analytics realm have some kind of 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 gaming or gambling background. 
Uh, I, I played <laughs> I played professional poker for for several years. I know a number of other you know people in in across the NBA, uh, NFL, um, baseball, and so on who have who have done who you know at, at some point in in you know at this point where they are in their careers, it was mostly kind of in the in the two thousands or early twenty tens because they've moved on to other things by now. But but it, that sort of trains the the notion of risk versus reward, and I think that sort of the traditional observational look at sports focuses almost wholly on the risk on bad things could happen if we do this, but, and this is probably easier for me to recognize in a sport where I'm not as, you know, deeply in tune with, uh, like I, I, I have knowledge of the game as a fan, but I've never uh, played or coached uh, or, or done really any formal analysis of soccer is okay. There's like the, uh, you know, a long diagonal ball, probably ends up with, or a through ball or something like that, probably ends up in a turnover most of the time. But mm-hmm. the times it works, it leads to such a high, like if, it, if, if it's, this is a thing that leads to a goal a reasonable amount of time and a goal is of, of such massive importance, the reward is, is so high, like, okay, how can you say that's a bad decision if, okay, it only works one time in 20, but we get a goal? That, that one time, it's like, okay, right. how bad does giving the ball away have to be for that to be a bad decision? And now that I think we can, we're starting to at least develop the tools to, you know, sort of measure those, those conditional probabilities. And I think that's sort of where it comes in. Now, the problem, the, the additional problem here is in, in, in basically, you know, every team sport, it's not a, it's not a binary. Like there's, right. there's, the closest I think we have is this is some interesting stuff that came a couple years ago out of the NFL's big data bowl using their, their tracking data was starting to kind of look at quarterback decision making. You can, you can, mm-hmm. you can start to measure the counterfactuals because there's, you know, reasonable, reasonably high number of repeated instances where receiver runs this route and this route and is covered this way and has this much space and is moving the movement vectors are X, Y, and Z. Uh, uh, so even if the receipt that, that, player wasn't targeted on a specific play, we can make some like reasonable surmises about how likely the pass would be to received. Now, the problem is, is you can only really, you can only really measure that, uh, or, or, or it's, um, it's only the passes that are thrown that, that sort of in, invoke that. It's not the, you right. know, everything that happened up to that point. And then even harder is, okay, what if the quarterback held the ball longer? Um, and that's and that's a that's a fairly straightforward one. And then then you, you think about like you know a player on the ball in soccer, or even a player running a pick and roll in basketball. There's not like a point at which okay, at this point I have to decide now and forever on this play whether I'm shooting, driving, or passing. Like it's it's a continuous. All of those decisions are open at sort of any given time until they aren't. So how do you? <laughs> like how do you integrate across that? That's that's the challenge, and, and and sort of coming up with like simpler, like like doing some level of abstraction so you at least get to the answer of some simpler levels is I think where most yeah. people are at now, and it's very hard. Absolutely, and it, it gets down to at the core of it, what is the definition of a good decision? And it, we didn't answer that in the books, unfortunately, <laughs> but we. We, we asked a lot of people and there's been a lot of research on it, but it, it gets down to, I guess, you know, the philosophy of the, of the head coach, you know, I, I suppose with metrics, we could say um, in analytics, we can say, well, these decisions led to the most points, you know, the, the Kirk Goldsberry stuff of, you know, uh, every possession and what the possession success rate, I forgot what his analytic is called, but, um, but saying, for every possession, we want to maximize, you know, our chances of scoring points. So what decisions, if we analyze tens of thousands of plays, what decisions, what play patterns, etc., maximized each possession's point? And so, and that may at times, you know, challenge a coaching philosophy. Like you've been trying this with this group of players. This might have worked five years ago for you. But with this group of players in today's game, uh, that isn't working for you as proven out by the analytics. And I I know a lot of coaches don't want to hear that. Um, But that's what it really gets down to is, and then once we've said, 
what is the best decision that we could have made here? Now, how do we train players to build that or take that model into their brain and say, you've learned basketball over the last 10, 15, 20 years. Um, Here's a different way to think about it. Here's when you're in that split second decision, you actually should go here and not there. I mean, you cover this a lot in your book about, you know, mid-range shots, long shots, layups, things like that. It's like, there's different philosophies and thinking. And now that we have new ways of approaching it with data, we can look at that. We were talking earlier about uh, some researchers who are using that player tracking data uh, and across lots of different companies are doing this now, using that player tracking data and then using artificial intelligence to try to overlay, uh, okay, what would be the best decision? Here's what happened on the court and we can show player movement, ball movement, et cetera, as computer graphics, but let's have AI analyze 100,000 plays and decide or model the best defense in the NBA and say, what would they have done in this situation, this specific play, and watch how the players move, et cetera. And I think that's a great teaching tool. Obviously, it's it's for teams that have budgets like that, but it, it starts to teach the players, here's how the best I optimize or the best uh, uh, defensive team in the league would have handled this theoretically and watch their movement here. And now we need to learn to do things in a similar way. Um, I I think that's, like you said, analytics 2.0, it's going to go beyond um, here's the numbers I'm reporting on what happened um, to here's some numbers along with ideal situations and here's how you can take this onto the floor during practice and, and teach some new philosophies. Does that make sense? I know, but I mean, some of the stuff the Bucks did, some of the stuff you've seen over the years, are coaches trending that way or are they still reluctant? Um, I mean, on some level, what you're describing is coaching. Um, it's right. sort of, it's sort of what, what, what inputs you're using to influence what, how you want to influence a player and then what methods you use to influence the players like that's I think that's that's sort of a slow changing thing because it's sort of um uh you know this is you know getting into a whole other area there's 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 research that I'm that like on on how the sort of the you know the grit in the in the the, the Angela Duckworth sort of area is sort of a, a, a double-edged sword in that like to reach a certain level you have to have confidence of your convictions but that that can that 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 that, that suggestive that sometimes when great players become coaches that may lead to some closed mindedness in terms of, of, uh, of like, uh, like that, that self-assuredness. No, I'm right. I know I'm right. And that's why I was like, but not being able to uh, update sort of uh, methods with, with new information uh, because of that self-assuredness. Um, I wanted to, 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 to bounce away from that just a little bit to just end okay. on, end on a, on a question, this is this is there's sort of two strands of what you've been talking about that are interesting here. Um, you were talking about sort of the remote control p- parents or coaches, and as you were talking about that, the, the image that it was in my mind was uh, Tom Thibodeau, uh, coach of the Knicks now. Um, if you watch their like his team's defensive possessions, he is basically playing along on the sideline. He's not telling necessarily players what to do, but he's he's like barking out cues almost. Um, and, and so you, you were talking earlier about using AI to identify what the best defense could do. And as you were describing that, I was, and, and you might have to bear with me here. I was thinking of the movie Sully, uh, by, you know, sure. the, the, about the, the, the pilot yeah. who landed the, the, and, and like his, the big reveal in that movie is like, oh, this in the pilots in the simulation could get to the spot. It's like, okay, well now add the fact that they have to figure out that's what they, that's what they were supposed to do. And then none of them could do it. And it's like, okay, no, you did the best you could after, like having to diagnose the situation. So I'm wondering if there's like, there, there's a median between what you were calling like the remote control in terms of these cues, these identifications of this is what they're doing. Now you've been trained to, to automatically do these things to address that kind of play the opposition is running. Um, am I, am I, Am, am I extrapolating too much or am I, am I onto something here? No, I, I think, I think you're absolutely right. And, and obviously at a, at a youth level, 
Um, I think I've seen some coaches say, um, coach in practice, let them play in the games. So in other words, all that cues, all of that, maybe after the play is over, uh, that, you know, specific coaching about, okay, in this situation, I'd like you to, to do this instead of this or, or positive reinforcement. I like what you did here. I'd like that pass you made. Um, that happens in practice and that's when they try to ingrain that. And then during the game, you know, let them play and let them, you know, discover, see if anything they retain from practice and see if those, those, uh, repetitions are stuck into their heads. Um, it's interesting. You mentioned, uh, the air, air force or the, uh, airplane pilot training. Uh, one, one of the guys we, we brought up non-sports related in the book was um, a guy named John Boyd, who was an Air Force colonel uh, back in the 70s and 80s. Um, and he flew in Vietnam, et cetera. And he was famous uh, throughout the military and then across a lot of different fields for a theory he put out there called the OODA loops, O-O-D-A. And it stands for Observe, Orient, Decide, Act. And we put a bunch of information in our book about that. But it's it's basically getting inside your opponent's OODA loop and trying to do it faster than him. So in other words, you have a lot of situations, you know, one-on-one in basketball, um, you know, just as you are with the ball deciding what you're going to do next, that defender is also deciding what they're going to do next. And it's not necessarily always a reaction to what you do, but they're also processing and they're trying to figure out where is he going? What is he going to do next? How can I be one step ahead of him? before he does what he's going to do. And um, I have a quote here from Boyd, and he did this for um, uh, combat pilot training. And it was the same idea that when you're in air combat, you need to go through these loops constantly. So you're observing what happens. You're orienting yourself to what you've observed, what your eyes and ears have brought in. You make that decision. and then you know, physically you act on that, you, you carry out the decision. And he says, this is John Boyd, the key is to obscure your intentions and make them unpredictable to your opponent while you simultaneously clarify his intentions. That is operate at a faster tempo to generate rapidly changing conditions that inhibit your opponent from adapting or reacting to those changes and suppress or destroy his awareness. And I think that's, it's another way of saying, you know, the system two to system one, but in a competition, you're trying to train that faster than the other person. I would think like um, in the example you gave, a coach yelling cues may be helpful to a player, but it's another processing cycle for them. They had an idea in mind of what they were going to do. And now they get this cue from the coach. They have to process that along with everything else that's going on. And then they have to decide in their head, okay, am I going to go with what the coach is suggesting or am I going to do what I had originally planned? And so it may be helpful, but I would say, you know, the coach could probably do that in the timeout rather than trying to do it live because it's it, things move too fast to try to interrupt that, that thought pattern. It's either system one or it's not, you know, that's what we're trying to get to. If it, if, Coach mentioned something on the sideline. Okay, now we've defaulted back to system two because now I have to analyze that. I have to take a half a second and go, wait, what did he say? Oh, okay, he wants me to do this. Okay, and then uh, and then continue on. So that might have been the half a second that they lost. So it, it's it, it's very subjective. It's all science that's <laughs> under review. Um, it's just uh, at this point ideas and more importantly, trying to ask coaches and parents and players, your brain is what's doing all of this. It's what's making all of your decisions for you out there. It is the reason for your success or failure. So learn more about your brain, read books, um, understand what's happening in your brain when you're trying to play sports. And by understanding some of that and learning new vocabulary and processes, you can maybe uh, improve your game and and with things that you didn't even consider in the past. I could ask you three hours more questions about stuff like this, but I've already kept you longer than I said I would. 
So I think that's that's going to be a, that's going to be a, a good spot to to wrap up for today. Um, perhaps okay. uh, ha- have you back sometime and and, uh, and 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 talk about some of the stuff further because this, this is all fascinating areas to me. Like you, uh, I appreciate the kind things you said about my book. It was I was originally going to write a chapter about stuff like this in my book, and as I was doing. Yeah. Starting to do the research, I, I made two sort of realizations simultaneously, which was, uh, one, I don't know enough about this to write about it, and two, this isn't a chapter, this is a book, or as you've kind of shown, uh, this is multiple books. Uh, <laughs> so um, so I, I appreciate learning the, like like uh, le- learning more about this from actual experts. Um, okay. But if you want to tell I, No, I was very fascinated, and, and obviously there's only so much you can tell me, but how did how did analytics go over with the bucks? How would concepts like we've talked about today? Uh, and I realize it's all about the coaches um, uh, acceptance of new ideas, new ways to look at things versus I know how to coach basketball. Don't bother me. And, and not specifically with the bucks coaches, but just NBA coaches, college coaches. Are we turning the corner where, like a lot of coaches read our book and they said some nice things, but you wonder, did this really change the channel? Did it, did it really, you know, get them thinking about different things? One of the things I story I usually tell I didn't today was um, our close relationship with Mike Sullivan, the head coach of the Pittsburgh Penguins. And Len is a longtime friend. In fact, Mike was in his classes back in Boston university when he played there, but Mike wrote the forward for our first book. And I was told a story um, I saw him on a YouTube video mid six, seven years ago. He wasn't with the Penguins yet. And he was giving a coaching clinic to uh, U.S. Youth Hockey. And he had like 200 young hockey coaches in the audience. And he talked for 45 minutes about the brain. And he talked about thinking fast and well, thinking fast slow wasn't out. He talked about um, uh, the talent code and things like that. And and learning and neurons and all this stuff. And I'm like, wow, here's a high level NHL coach talking about the brain, but I feel like he's in the minority. What do you think? So I think that, and this is, this is the interesting, I think this is sort of where I like to think that in, in this area that, that kind of myself and people like me sit is, you know, I think this is true sort of across science is like, there's the discovery and then there's sort of the the translation to lay terms and uh, the, the uh, designing and and creation of application, and then it gets into the hands of practitioners and gets used. And I so I think that that's um, I think that everything you're saying. My impression is that that coaches are absolutely fascinated by it, and without help, have no idea how to put it into practice. And so okay, having okay. people who can, who can, you know, cause they're, they're, they're experts in what they're experts in. Um, and right. th- then there might be, need to be an intermediary sort of, and this is, this is the way that, that kind of analytics, you know, quote unquote, gets in the hands of players and coaches in general is that, you know, uh, in the early days of analytics, it was the same person. And that often was part of the problem because the, sort of the skills and personality traits that leads one to be a good statistical analyst don't always lead one, one to be a good and empathetic communicator. Um, though mm-hmm. it, there are some, but like that, those are, those are, that's the exception rather than the rule. And so having people who could understand enough, and this is, I think where I put, put myself, cause I am, I am, you know, I have far more practical uh, training in, in, in kind of, uh, you know, AI and statistics and, and, mm-hmm. and programming and stuff like that than I do formal expertise, but understanding what they're doing and the out it's enough to trust the outputs of what they're doing to then translate it into sport terms. So, uh, I guess this is, this is, you know, I, 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 I use this term all the time and certainly did in my book is that like, you've got to change, we've got to have the ability to chain trade kind of the academic version of what we're talking about to the basketball version in, in the case of basketball or the football or the hockey or, or soccer or what have you. And that's a whole, like that, that, that's sort of been something that's been yada yada over the years. It's like, how do we got to have the nerds talk to the jocks? It's like, okay, yeah. but how is kind of important. And I think like just learning that is the, that's a, that's a, uh, 
art, not a science of figuring out how to communicate that stuff. And that's, so that's the, uh, that's the part I think that, that we're working on now, because it seems like, as you said, this is the kind of thing, wait, you're telling me if I do these things, I can help my players be better and execute what I want them to do more. Mm-hmm. How? Like the, the, there's the, there's the demand, but not yet the, the you know, not yet the, the, the product to fit that market, if you will. Right. Yeah. And, um, and I think a lot of teams, especially at the college and pro level, they're like, well, we have our sports psychologist. That's that's the brain, right? We've got that covered. <laughs> it's and like, it's, well, no, it's that's a whole different, different thing, category. Though. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like right. we're not we're not talking about cognitive training, and, and the sports psychologist might feel you know put upon. Wait, you're bringing in someone else. I'm your sports psychologist. I handle the brain, and it's like, well, you don't really not you you handle the sports psychology topics, but you don't talk about you know some of the things we talk about. So, and I'm not trained. I'm, I mean, that would, that's lens world. But uh, as he always said, it's he, he's in performance psychology, which is all of these topics, but not, he, he knows the traditional psychology stuff. That's where he got his PhD, but yeah. Interesting stuff. Yeah. There's the, if, if it was easy, everyone would have done it already. Um, and I think, <laughs> I think, I think that's that like, again, I, uh, uh, we could talk all day about this, but I think that's a good spot to end. And I want to, to, uh, thank you again for, for coming on and chatting with sure. me. Um, sure, uh, no problem. anything, uh, any, uh, you want to tell people where they can, they can get the books or if anything that you're working on, uh, uh, you know, in this area kind of currently that you, you'd, you'd like to tell people about or tease before I let you go. Um, no, actually I, you know, Len is, <laughs> is I think happily retired, but he does work with some teams. He works with the Pittsburgh Penguins. Uh, for a while, he was working with the Golden State Warriors, um, but he's he's still uh, sought out for, for speaking engagements, et cetera. Um, now I can just provide the links um, to buy the books, or I'm sure you will look them up on Amazon. And um, um, yeah, that's about it. Just appreciate the time. And thank, uh, Dan Peterson, thank you so much. And thanks, thanks for f- folks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Uh, we'll, we're from the theoretical this week. We're going to, uh, move next week. I think at least one of my shows is going to be talking about the tire fire that is going on in Brooklyn right now, uh, with Alex Schiffer of the athletics. So tune in then. And thanks a lot for listening.